I, I want to begin. First of all, I, uh, on, on this particular morning, I want to say Shavach Fodair Lakadish Baruch Hu because I started my work on the Rav writing in 1987. And uh, this very morning, 10,000 volumes go to the bindery, 5,000 times two. And they say that by this coming thir- by Thursday of this week already, they're starting to ship out. So uh, Yosef Friedman's going to call uh, Bernie Shopstein today, call Ktav, and find out when, when we can expect them to reach Israel, because around that we have to plan a uh, public affair. We want to be sure the volumes are here. Um, we're going to try our best. You have to talk with Joseph. He's dealing with the importer here. I don't, I'm not allowed to sell the books or anything. He's dealing with the importer, and you, you'll deal with Joseph that it has to be arranged through the importer here. Now, I want to give a uh, drop of background. Um, Kolzman, those of you that were with me yesterday know that for seven years I was a Rebbe in YU in the United States. I still maintain a relationship with many of my students out of the 60s who today are in their 50s. Many are world-famous figures, many are uh, accomplished figures, some are remain B'nai Torah, some didn't, but I remain friendly with many of them. Uh, Kolzman, I was a Rebbe in the yeshiva. Obviously, I taught uh, Gemara Rashi and Tosfat Rambam Raivet like every other Rebbe, tried to say Chidushim. Rabbi Revel used to say, it's a meridic word, I told it to someone this week, but Rabbi Revel, Zeichel Tzadik Levracha, used to say, I have too many Rosh Yeshiva in the yeshiva and too few Malamdin. And it's a good vart. So like everyone else, I try to be a Rosh Yeshiva. Perhaps I should have only been a Malamid, not a Rosh Yeshiva. Then when I came in Aliyah, as I mentioned yesterday, and um, Rabbi Horowitz, Rabbi Meshach Horowitz, known to us as uh, Whitey, uh, asked me to start teaching in BMT. And I developed my own course, a course that I gave for 20 years in BMT, a course that I suffer from not giving but there's just no place for me to give it today. It's a course that I wouldn't give smicha to anyone who didn't take the course. It's the history of Torah in modern times. If you take that course, it turns you into a different uh, Ben Torah. But unfortunately, I can't give it in the kolil. There's simply no time, and I have nowhere else where to give it. I gave it to 20 years in BMT, but what was unique was I developed it all on my own. In other words, there was no textbook. I had to build the textbook. Subsequently, Every class I ever gave, and I gave, as I mentioned yesterday, many different classes in Michalar. I gave the, the Makarat Palacha, what we started yesterday, a 12-year course. I gave a two-year survey course. I gave the Mavola Sefrut Chazal. And all these courses did, did not have text. Once I developed one course without a text, I followed the principle, don't teach what, what anyone can get from a textbook, don't teach what you know, always teach what you don't know, and gain a little knowledge yourself. Now, this particular course... The Hashgacha Pratatia, I shiver, I shake. I also have to tell you in parentheses, I may at times reminisce, tell stories. It'll sound like I stepped out of the Flintstones or the Jetstones. Every story I tell is absolutely true. There is no one I know that has had as an exciting a life, uh, as fulfilling a life, as challenging a life as Aaron Rakefet. There's no one I know who's made less money in life than Aaron Rakefet. But uh, there are other factors. So every story I want to tell you, there is never a story I will tell you that is not absolutely 100% true. I'm a doc taking details. I live these stories. I don't want Larry Kaplan to attack me for saying something uh, incorrect historically. I watch my, uh, my P's and Q's. And this course that uh, people tell me, I don't have to sing the praises of the Rav, but I only 
don't even want to cite what Professor Elman said about it. He's the only one outside of members of the family who have read my work from start to finish. The Hashgacha Pratit of how uh, this course, the Rav, and everything happening today at a bindery someplace in New Jersey happened is uh, shocking. And the story is as follows. By the early 70s, I was quite established as a teacher in Michlala. I was teaching advanced Israeli courses, and uh, by the second or third year into Michlala, I was also spending part of my time with the American girls. One time, it has to be uh, before the Yom Kippur War, I, I, you can check it out, because it has to, it's the year David Hartman came in Aliyah. So I don't recall whether it was 72, whatever it was. The Israeli girls came over to me, these advanced students, postgraduate, and these girls, uh, bright, brilliant girls, knew English quite well, and uh, they said to me, uh, Rebbe, so I looked at them. I said, what? I said, where'd you get that idea? I said, there was no one like the Rav. He was practically a Yaki. The Rav said, Torah, tile, tile, the, the lines of Torah on every line in the Piyot. And, and who told you he skipped it? So the girls told me they heard a lecture from Rabbi Hartman in the old city, Ben Kesseliasa. And he said that the Rav skipped the Piyot. And David Hartman had just come in Aliyah. And those of you who know who David Hartman is, was, it's a very fascinating story. Uh, he was a Chaim Berlin boy who went to Lakewood, got married young, and found his way to YU. He is the last student ever to get smicha from YU who did not graduate college. They made a s- special exception for him. He finally went to Fordham University, got credit for his theological degree, went to college later. And when I came into the yeshiva, Duvi Hartman was one of the real delights. There was Aaron Lichtenstein, we used to call him the babe. There was the Gersh, that was Gersh and Sadowski. Between Aaron and the Gersh, they were the two top. But, uh, it's still a machloikin until today, the guys from my era, who was the bigger London. But uh, they were fabulous. And uh, I've often told the story, um, they used to be tremendous matmidim. And we would all bet, when we would leave the Beit Medrash at night, bets would be taken like bookies, would go up and down, Gersh, the babe. Gersh, Aaron, Gersh, the babe, you put in a quarter. And then the next morning you came into the base medrash and Charlie Purvis was the night watchman. Charlie, what happened last night? And Charlie would go, the babe, by 22 minutes. It meant Gersh left the base medrash at 1.12, aired on 22 minutes, that's when, that's when the babe left the base medrash. And uh, that's the way Yeshiva was. Duvi Hartman was not a matman, he was married already, so he couldn't hang around till one, two o'clock in the base medrash, but he had a very good mind, was very, and also very close to the rub. And he was, you know, he had been in Lakewood and in Berlin. He was an interesting guy, basketball player. Bob Cousy played with Bob Cousy, a name you don't remember. That was the Michael Jordan of the nineteen early of the early fifties. So he came in Aliyah, very dramatic speaker. So I say to the girls, listen, maybe he doesn't know Hebrew. You don't know English. And Hartman, until today, his Hebrew is not, uh, when I listen to him, I choke, because he can make mistakes uh, in gender, etc. So he spoke English. So the girl said, but we know English. I said, did anyone record it? They said, yes. I said, bring me a recording. So after Sukkot, they finally get me, you know, a recording. And I listened to the tape, and I saw what happened. Hartman is saying over, Mori Rebbe, Mori Rebbe, saying over, Torah from Torah from And then he shifts into Hartman. But he doesn't make clear to the girls that he's shifting. And he's very dramatic. He says, the Piyot doesn't talk to us today. It's meaningless. 
We should daven until one o'clock, close the marsha, go home and contemplate. And then come back for the ila. So I told the girls, look, it's not your fault you fell into a trap. Hartman should have made clear, Adkan Moriu Rebbe. Now begins David Hartman. He didn't. But I said to myself, Ani Rothkoff, Aaron Rakefet, you bum, you rascal, you have an obligation. Put together something on the Rav. And I started to put together a course for Michola, and I gave it for the first time, 1977-78, a one-year course on the Rav. It was a tremendous response. And then time marched on. That very year the Kolol opened, the boys brought me in with the shit that you heard last night. And within a few years they had heard rumors in Michala, I'm now giving a two-year course on the Rav, and they started putting pressure on me to give it in the Kolel. At that time I couldn't give two courses. I was doing a lot of teaching on a collegiate level, not postgraduate. And we went to Rabbi Lichtenstein, the committee of the boys went and put down in front of Rabbi Look, you all know uh, Rav Rakefet teaches the course in uh, responsible literature, but we'd like him, if he can only give one course, we'd like to hear about the Rav. <laughs> so Rav Paskin, and I have to give him all the credit in the world, I'm quoting him word by word. No, the course in responsible literature is much more important. And Rav in his immutable way, broke into a little smile and I'll tell you why. It's not that I have anything against my father, but you see... If you don't know the Rav's Machshava, you'll still be a good Jew. But if you don't know responsible literature, all of Psak, the Halacha, you're missing something. And he says, willy-nilly, over the years, you'll pick up something on the Rav, because he was correct. A lot was going to be written and published. It was already the, the, the early 80s, and the barriers were falling. Then, about two years later, I was able to give an extra two hours in the Kolel, and that's when we brought in the Rav, and what was a two-year class became a three-year class, a four-year class, a five-year class. Now, this class I've put a lot of effort into. You'll see I've reconstructed Shayurim, uh, but something else happened. In 1987, I gave three lectures or four lectures on the Rav as a master storyteller. And I developed a theme that, you know, everyone speaks about the Rav, and the Rav was so seminal, you see. Anything the Rav touched turned to gold. His mind was always innovative. Uh, if you want him, I, I, Rabaran Soloveitchik said to me a few years ago, I went to visit him in Chicago, and Rabaran was a little younger yet and very sharp. Rabaran said to me, the only one who could have possibly succeeded my brother was Chaim, his son. And what's unique about Chaim? Look at Rupshin Reconstruction. There is Chaim, a sociologist, and there's so much Chiddush there, so much insight, and that's the Rav. See, whatever the Rav touched, it was learning, it was brisk, it was Dashanut, it was homiletics, it was Chassidut. Whatever he touched, it was Pashanut Mikra. he always brought tremendous Chiddush. It was a lesson, the Rav's mind, the brisker mind, the Valajan mind, it was fabulous. And I hit upon one point. I said, you know, everyone's praising the Rav for brisk. Everyone's praising the Rav as a Dashan. Everyone is praising the Rav as a speaker. But no one realizes the Rav was an unbelievable storyteller. 
And I gave four lectures in the Kolel, the Rav as a storyteller. Fellas pleaded with me to write it up. And uh, I had just finished at that time, I had two books that had been published, and I started work on two and a half chapters written of something I'd planned afterwards. And I put it aside, I said, you know, let's see if it's worth writing up. And I gave the tapes to my student, uh, Joey Epstein, and Joey got all excited, and I said to Joey, you're right, if you'll help me, maybe we should do something. And uh, the end results, Bezrat Hashem, the bindery is getting today, and uh, it'll be in the hands of every Jew in the world, from Larry Kaplan to J.J. Shechter, to Walter Rashi Yeshiva, to Walter Tamidim of the Rav, to Walter Family of the Rav. A fellow in the Kolel asked me just a few years ago, Joey Azar, he came into class, and he got very upset. He said, Rebbe, you're describing the rub. This is not the rub we heard about. Our Rebbeim in America describe a different rub. Who gives you the right to describe the rub the way you do? And gentlemen, I say to you, 650 pages are now being bound. Let everyone in the world read it. And let every expert, every maven, every Talmud, every family member, every nephew... Every Rosh Yeshiva, let them read every word. And if there's one syllable where I'm off base, hold me responsible. Slap my face. Beat me up. Do to me as I said yesterday to the guy who doesn't want to give a get. And that's the way this course began. Now, for this year, Um, we're on the line to Sharit Sedek Hospital, so uh, ambulances are, are part of the background music here. Uh, New York, the background music are fire engines. It's amazing. Whenever I listen to a tape of the Rav, all I hear are fire engines. In Israel, for whatever the reasons are, because the buildings are built out of stone, it's very rare that there's a fire. Very rare. So you don't hear fire engines. But on this part of the neck of the woods, you hear ambulances all the time. Uh, now, what I want to do this year, Bezrat Hashem, I'm starting today giving a shear that I haven't given in about five years. It's a reconstruction of the Rav's Trivid Russia in 1973. This Russia was set originally right before the Yom Kippur War, October 3rd, 1973. Uh, I won't finish it today. It'll take me two, three times. It's a Meredith Russia. It's the Rav uh, Bagat Luto at peaks in his life. The second half of the drasha has what is, for me, very moving and eternal messages. Um, after I finished this, I worked very hard April into May. I've prepared a piece on uh, the rub given in Boston, dealing with getting drunk on Purim. I didn't want to open with that because simply it's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's not a time to get drunk. Right now... I'm working on something the Rav gave in 56 in uh, Moria, which is just overwhelming because it captures the Rav with his basic philosophy of, of the human being, human endeavor, and the Dashanud. It's just fabulous. Um, I have to see how much time allows. What I'm playing with, and I may very well do it, is the minute the Rav arrives here, hold it in front of me, and start lecturing on the Torah Shabal Peh behind the Torah Shabal Because the tremendous fault with my two volumes on the Rav is, there's not one word of Aaron Rekhefer in there. Every word is scholarship, every word is fact. But there's an entire Torah Shabal Peh, every paragraph, why I wrote what I wrote, 
what my own feelings are, what I think happened. And there's so much that I want to say beyond the written word, and I want to say it while my mind is strong and I, I recall and I'm still in the prime. So I may very well do that. We'll start at a certain point this year. It'll probably take us a few years, but there's not the Shem. As I said yesterday, I never live in the present. When you live in the past and plan for the future, one has all the time in the world. And with Shaul's entry, let us begin. Now, a word about the Trivadrashat. How did they begin? See, this is an interesting psychological point. Uh, I, and I want to be very brief because I'll deal with this more when I go through my own work on the Rav page by page. The Rav in the 30s into the 40s was not that well known. A lot of people uh, make the mistake when you deal with the Rav of the 50s and the 60s, you juxtaposition him into the 30s and 40s. One of the greatest lessons I ever had in research, and I have to thank the man and his memory, was Louis Finkelstein. Uh, when I was working on my doctorate and I came up with all the papers on the attempt to merge the yeshiva and the seminary in the mid-twenties, I make an appointment to see Chancellor of JTS, Rabbi Dr. Professor Louis Finkelstein. And I walk in, little did I know that the secretary who ushered me into his beautiful office uh, would later be the mother-in-law of one of my dearest students, and I come in and here is Professor Finkelstein sitting behind the big, big desk and there is little Lonnie Rothkopf coming to interview him. And I start shooting questions at Finkelstein about the merger, about what happened in 25, 26. And think what American Jewry would have been. Imagine had the seminary and yeshiva merged. It's, it's an unbelievable thought. Perhaps there'd be no, no, no conservative Judaism in America. Perhaps there'd be modern, no modern orthodoxy. It would only be reformed conservative and right-wing orthodoxy today. Can I inherit? I don't know. And I'll never forget Professor Finkelstein takes off his glasses and looks at me and he says, Rabbi Rothkopf, you're a young man. Let me give you some advice. You are making one big mistake. You are interviewing the Chancellor of Jewish Theological Seminary in 1964 or 63, whatever year it was. But you don't seem to realize that in 1922, 23, 24, 25, I was in short pants. I was a nobody and nothing. I was a kid. You know more than I do about that era. And I'll never forget that. When you talk about the Rav, the 30s in Boston, he was suffering. He was downtrodden. The Yelter Rabbanim were eating his heart out. Get this man out of here. The younger generation couldn't understand him. He was a fanatic. You, you have no concept what America was like then. Read the Silver Era. By 1940, he comes to Yeshiva. How big was Yeshiva and Yeshiva College at that time? A few hundred students. How many Talmudim did he have in his class? 20, 21. 25. But by 1950, 51, he was the rough. The Malamid from his little classroom was already an American figure on his way to becoming a world figure. 
By the early 50s, Rabbinical Council of America, RCA, asks him to become chairman of the Halachic Commission. And of course, when he becomes chairman of the Halachic Commission, this already is recognition. This already is the Rav beyond the classroom. 1954, and I believe that's the year you can check it in my published work, the Rav, I have everything uh, detailed there and everything footnoted. But I, I believe it was 54. If I'm off, I'm off by a year. The Rav was asked by RCA, Rebbe, give us some material for Yom Narayim, give us some homiletical material. And before a handful of rabbis, he gave a tshuva drasha. By the next year, people were knocking on the doors to come in. Now, what's interesting is the tshuva drasha went on to approximately, and again, in my book I have exact dates, I believe until 1980. You can check me if I'm wrong. I think the last Chivadrasha was given in 1980. If I'm if I'm incorrect, 1980, yeah, because 1981 the Rav suffers the mini stroke, and I think he doesn't give a major share in public again afterwards. Uh, but in 1980, so in other words, the Chivadrasha went on from 54 to 1980. What's amazing about this drasha? It attracted its first tens, hundreds, thousands of people. However, it remained an RCA function. That drasha never was given under the auspices of Yeshiva University. The Chiva drasha remained RCA. The outside drasha remained with Yeshiva University. And it was like these two great institutions staked their claim in the Rav and they wouldn't relinquish. And the Chiva drasha they had to hire tremendous hotels and they wire made Shea in, on, on 92nd Street, Lexington Avenue. They had to get places of venue that could sit thousands. Glamper Auditorium could have handled it. But RCA didn't want to let go. This was their moment of glory. They sponsored the Rav. And I want to say something else that's very interesting. All of you know, or some of you know that I said last year and I repeat it again, Torah ended in America the day in 1960, September, when Danny Greer uh, conned the Rav into changing from English, from Yiddish to English. That moment was the end of Torah in America. Everything we suffer from today, please let me have my opinion, I'll explain myself. Everything we suffer from today is a result of that decision. Because until then, we were getting Torah from a Rishon, we were part of Europe, we were part of Lithuania. Harari, what's your first name? Mendy. Even even the SYs had a master Yiddish to understand the Rav. You understand that they were transplanted. We were back in in, in Slabotka and in Tells. And my time, there were SYs for perfect Yiddish. You understand? Pi, I can mention names. Sutton, uh, uh, Katzin. You follow me? They had a master it. But in your case, I would draw my comment. But in the case of the Ashkenazim, then it went into English. It became a cliché. Today already it's odd scrolled. It's a cliché. Rabbi David Miller told me a story yesterday. My hair was standing on edge that one of the fellows that's about to get smicha sitting here in this kollel quoted a source and, and misread a word that in my time at the age of nine we read correctly. But we can't even blame you. You're the odd scrolled generation. And 
The rub switched into English. I'm an eyewitness. I have the footnote. I can give you practically the exact date. It was September 1960. Uh, the story is very simple. I've told the story many times. The rub would sit here. I would sit here. Right after class, Danny Greer, who had graduated Princeton, and knew the rub. I didn't realize that at the time, but his father was a big shot in Maria. Danny comes over to the rub. The rub had just finished here. It's Tuesday, 3 o'clock. And he says, Rebbe, you're denying Torah to Jewish boys. And the Rebbe says, what do you mean? What do you mean? And Greer says, Rebbe, I graduated Princeton. The minute the Rebbe heard he graduated Princeton, his prestige went up a thousand percent. He says, I want to take off a year and learn with you, but I don't understand Yiddish. And the Rebbe says, you don't understand Yiddish? Tomorrow I'm saying this year in English. And after this year I'm giving you a And Wednesday we come in. Shear was 9.30 in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. The Rav says the whole Shear in English. We don't understand the word. It's English. It was unbelievable to, com- to comprehend him. It took a long time to learn the Rav's English. But Danny Greer with all this chutzpah comes over to the Rav after Shear. Rebbe, I'm ready for the Bechina. And the Rav says, Leave me alone. I'm exhausted. You understood? Good. I'll continue in English. That, that was the end of Kli Torah in America. It's amazing. The Rav switched English both in New York and in Boston. All the tapes out of the 50s from Boston are in Yiddish. From the 60 on, everything's in English. What's fascinating is only two Sheurim remained in Yiddish. The Chivad Russia and the Yotzite Russia. There, the language never changed. Maria remained in Yiddish for the Balabatam on Tuesday night. The Shir was totally in English. Every public talk was in English. But the Yotzite Russia and the Chuvid Russia remained in Yiddish. It's a very interesting comment. In other words, where the Rav reached the high point of his teaching, of his Chiddush, of his innovation, of, of his seminal mind, he couldn't break into English. It had to be in Yiddish. And his Yiddish was overwhelming. Yiddish, you cried with him, you laughed with him, you soared with him. It was overwhelming. And let us begin. Now, in these reconstructions, uh, I've, I've made one improvement. Those of you that know the Rav have heard the Rav or heard him via tape. The Rav rarely gave sources. Generally speaking, he would say, Chazal Habim Gizok in Zohar State, and you had to find the sources on your own. Every source that the Rav mentions, I have found. In my work on the Rav, you'll notice in my bibliography, it says sources attributed to the Rav. And I have a footnote that explains it, because the Rav didn't give the source. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't want to be so arrogant to say this is what the Rav meant. All I can say is, little Aaron Rekhefet thinks that perhaps, maybe, this is the Zohar the Rav is referring to. So I use the word attributed to the Rav. Generally speaking, in a Chivad Russia and a Yotzite Russia, because there was a tremendous audience among them, people who were not that learned, so the Rav generally was more medactic to give sources. Our problem was that we never asked the Rav. And I've, from my generation, we often mention it when we want to reconstruct the Shia, we want to find the source. Why didn't we ask him, Rebbe, what is the source? But none of us had the chutzpah. We sat before the Rav, the Chilu, Rechimu. None of us had the chutzpah. What's the source? We couldn't, we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Okay. Uh, and, and by the way, the sources we're going to dash in now 
the Rav dashened a thousand times. These are the sources. Time after time, he came back to the same sources in Al Hatshuva, in 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 Yemezi Karon, and in Arnold Lustiger's work. In other words, these Shuvadrashad have been written up first by Pinchas Peli, then by Moshe Krona, and then in English by Arnold Lustiger. It's the 1990s. Hebrew doesn't go over it. It has to be in English. But you'll see that year after year, he dashed in the same sources, but each year he saw it differently, gave a new hue, a new interpretation, a new coloration. The last Mishnah in Yuma, Yuma Perikhet Mishnah Tet. Amar Rabbi Akiva, Ashreichem Yisrael, Lifnei miyatem mitaharin, Umimetaeretchem, Avichem Shebeshamayim. And this is Rabbi Akiva, the conclusion of Mesechet Juma. Rabbi Akiva getting the Jews all excited. How fortunate you are. Who do you stand before when you purify yourself? And who purifies you? Look at the words of the Mishnah. Avichem Sheba Shemaim. And every word will dashen. It's an interesting term. Avichem Sheba Shemaim. Doesn't say the Rebani Shalom. Doesn't say HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Can you tell me what uh, euphemism or, or, or what aphorism is used for God in, uh, in Masechet Kedushin? Remember that? Where it talks about Kibar Aviyem. Here? Something very different. Avichem Sheba Shemayim. Shenema. And the Mishnah quotes two different psukim, two different concepts. V'zarachti aleichem mayim tahorim utahatem. Hazaah. Yecheskel Lamidvav Pasuk Kafhei Viomer Mikve Yisrael Yemiyaku Yudalit Pasuk Chet Ma Mikve Mitacheret Atmeim Afakadish Baruchu Mitacher Et Yisrael. So it's fascinating. Rabbi Akiva brings two different concepts. Look how happy you should be. Who purifies you? Avinu Sheba Shemayim or Avicham Sheba Shemayim. And two different concepts. Hazaah, he pours on you mechatat, like from the paraduma. And secondly, it's like going to mikveh. Mikveh Yisrael. When you come close to God, it's immersing yourself in a mikveh. And the Rav said, we have to understand, why do we have these two different concepts? Why, why do we have two different psukim? Why did Rabbi Akiva feel it necessary to use two different sources? And why did Rabbi Akiva use the appellation for God, not Rebbeinu Shalom and not the Kaddish Baruch Hu, not Baruch but he uses the application for God, Avichem Shabashamayim. And these were the Rav's questions. And the Rav said, if we understand Rabbi Akiva, in this little statement, in this little Mishnah, we have all the Yisodot of Shiva and the secret of Yom Kippur. And let's begin. The Rambam and Hilchot Shiva, Parak Aleph, Halachar Aleph. Kol mitzvah Shabbat Torah, Bein Asei, Bein Lotasei, Imavar Adam Alachat Mehem, Bein Bezadom, Bein Bishkaga, Ki Shaset Shuva, V'yashuv Mechatao, Chayav Lechitvadot Lefnei Hakel, Baruch Hu. And, and here you have the first halacha in Hilchat Shuvah. And what is the halacha saying? That 
when you want to be Chose B'Tshuva, it doesn't matter what your sin was, your Chayav Vidui. What is it telling us? That without the Vidui, without the feeling of Tshuva, there can be no Kapara. Kabonot, Dalit Mitabetin, Sa'ir HaMishtaleach, all the different concepts that the Torah commands to bring about Kapara to achieve atonement, but in order to achieve atonement, you must have vidui. Vidui, of course, is indicative of tshuva. You recognize you, you've sinned. You promise not to sin in the future. You must have the component of tshuva, all the kabonot, and, and, and all the seirim mishtalchim, and all the dalet mitat beitin. If you're not mitvadeh, if you're not chozeh b'tshuva, you cannot achieve kapara. That's one halacha. You move down to halachat later. Tshuva perek alaf halacha gimel. Bizman hazeh. She'ein beit ha-mikdash kayim. V'ein lanu mizbeach kapara. Ein sham ela tshuva. Tshuva mechaperet al kol averot. Afilu Russia kol yama v'yasa tshuva b'achrona ein maskirin lo shum davami rishow shenema. According to pasuk from Yecheskel Lamed Gimel pasuk yud bet rishit harasha lo yekeshel bo biyom shuvo made a show. V'itzumo shayom akipurim mechavea la shavim shenema v'yikrek tadzayin pasuk lamed. So what does he have here? The Rambam goes on to describe nowadays we don't have a Beit HaMikdash, we don't have a Mizbeach, we don't have Kabbalat. All we have is Tshuva. And he shows how powerful Tshuva is that a Russia call your mother. But if he does tshiva, God will never throw in his face the sins he did. And then the Rambam adds how important Yom Kippur is. What's happening here? We're already in Halacha Ralev. The Rambam stressed the necessity for tshiva. Already in Halacha Ralev, the Rambam said that, that without vidui, without tshiva, no carbon. Nothing can be effective. Then certainly, if we don't have Kabbalah, and don't have Dalit Mitat Beitin, and don't have Sa'ir HaMishtaleach, you must have Tshiva. What's the Rambam being Machadesh? Why do we need Halacha Gimel? It's a fortiori, it's a Kalvachoma, Halacha Kamavachama. If we don't have the other techniques of achieving atonement and kapara, and all we have is tshiva, alachat kamavakama, there must be tshiva. How can you have anything without tshiva? How can there be any atonement without tshiva? That's all we have today. What is the Rambam adding? What is the Chiddush? I just want to tell you in parentheses, uh, and this the Rav didn't say, but it's one of the most beautiful uh, selections I know of if you deal with tshiva. See, the Rambam here cites what we just read, that if a Russia does tshuva, you don't mention his sins at all. Everything is blocked out. 
God doesn't throw it in his face. There's a beautiful volume that not many two people read today. This is My God by Herman Wook. Familiar with it? And when I was in Yeshiva College, Herman Wook actually taught a course in a seminar in writing, in, in, in writing English. And, you know, Herman Wook at that time was world famous. Today, of course, he's an older man and... Uh, I don't know if there have been any novels uh, lately or any major works, but Herman Wook in the 50s was Herman Wook. So if you read the work, this is my God. Herman Wook's life story is very fascinating. His grandfather was a rabbi in the Bronx, his mother's father. Rabbi Minkin, if I'm not mistaken. If anyone wishes to correct me, they can, but that's the way my memory uh, reads out at this moment. So Rev in the Bronx. And he tells the story when he was a little kid. His grandfather was teaching Hilchot Shavas before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And a firm Jew got furious at the grandfather. And he said, how can this be? I'm Shabbos. I'm Makpid and Kashrit all my life. And you mean to tell me that if a Jew suddenly does Shiva, all the Chilu Shabbos, all the treif that he ate is forgotten? And uh, Herman Rook's grandfather said yes. And this Jew was furious. He was upset. He was angry. After the Jew walked out, the grandfather turned to the grandson and said, Look, I told him that. He's a little upset with me. But I didn't really tell him the whole story. And he said to Herman Wook, If you have 70 years of good deeds, so you have 70 golden pages when you come upstairs. If you had 68 years, you were Machalu Shabbos, Ochling, Nevelet, and Trefat, and the last two years you did Shiva, he said you have 68 pages that are blank when you come upstairs, and two golden pages, and that's the difference. And that's a Meir de Kvot, and it fits right in on this Rambam, and that's exactly the Rambam, that ain't if a person does Shiva, you don't remind him of his past. But on the other hand, I feel a lot happier knowing that Reina Doimer, a guy who was so Zolel the Soveya, and all his life was a Machalushabis, Eichlin of Elton Trefit, Boil Bilata Surat, and suddenly the guy does Chiva, and you mean to say Ziku with a person that all his years wrote golden pages? That was Herman Luke's grandfather. It's a beautiful passage in This Is My God. In general, This Is My God. How many of you have read it? How many of you have studied it? It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful volume. I, I think it's still timeless as far as the message it delivers, although it's timely in the sense it's placed in, in America in the 1950s. You understand, if you, the, you know, the introduction, the reading, the yeshivish person, the Hasidic Jew, the strange bird on the American scene. Today in New York, anyone who does a movie to show the multicoloredness of New York, right away you have black and, 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 and Puerto Rican and Caribbeans and Hasidim, and they fit right in. It's part of the landscape. Today it's taken for granted. But uh, in Herman Wook's time, when I was growing up, it was a strange new bird on the American scene. Now, and the Rav said so beautifully. No, the Rav said, these are two different halachat. It's not a repetition. It's two different halachat. In halacha ralaf, what the Rambam is telling us, we have many means of seeking atonement, many techniques. We have kabonot, we have dalet mitad beitin, we have malkot, we have sa'iha mishtaleach, yes, ein hachinami. But the Rambam is simply telling us that without tshuva, the kapara cannot be complete. There must be tshuva in order to 
bring about a total, complete, and absolute atonement. However, in Halacha Gimel, the Rambam is telling us something else. That nowadays, when we don't have all these techniques, when we don't have a Beis HaMikdash, when we don't have a Segir HaMishtalayach, and one can think that we cannot achieve total kapara and atonement, this is the Kiddush of the Rambam. Nowadays, with Tshuva alone, with the Itzumoshal Yom Kippur, if you Chazeb Tshuva, Yom Kippur alone is enough to achieve what the Sayyid HaMishtalayach, what Kabonot, what Dalit Mitabetan had achieved in the past. Today there's a tremendous Kiddush that Tshuva, Vidui, is not just the Tanai for achieving Kapara, but this is the heart of the atonement process. This is the heart of what Yom Kippur is all about. And Yom Kippur, with the Tshuva, has the ability to take the place of all that we had, Bizman Habet Amigdash Ahmad al And that's why the Rambam brings the Pasuk, the Rambam brings the Pasuk to stress the Kedusha of Yom Kippur, the uniqueness of Yom Kippur. By Yom Hazer, it takes the place of the Beit HaMikdash, the Kodonot, the Sayyim Ishtalayach, the Dalet Mitad Beitin, the Malkad. All you need is Tshuva. And you can achieve everything that you achieved in days gone by. And the Rev said so beautifully, this is why we have two psukim. This is why in Achrei Mot, we speak about the Kaparav the Sayyir, Vayikret Hadzayin Pasuk Haftet, Venasah HaSayyir Alav, Et Kalavanotam Aleretz Gezerah, and a few sentences later, Vayikret Hadzayin Pasuk Lamed, Ki Bayom Hazer Yechaper Aleichem, Letaer Etchem, Mikol Chatotechem, Lefnei Hashem Titaru. And what do we see? This is here, Mishtaleach, but there's a different Pasha as well. There'll be a time when there won't be a Seher Mishtaleach, where there won't be a Beit HaMikdash, where there won't be the Kohanim and the Avodah of the Kohen Gadol in the Musaf of Yom Kippur. And at that time, Ki Bayom Hazer, it's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur itself is Metaher B'nei Yisrael. In addition, and beyond that which the Sayer can achieve. The Kedusha Trayom is so overwhelming that it takes the place of everything we had before. And here, this is why David Hartman was so wrong. This is why the Paitanium, the Piyot, those of you who know the Rav, he said so many drushat on the Piyot of Yom Kippur, the Piyot of Rosh Hashanah. All of you know the Kinot on, on Tishabav who, if I can quote Rav Heschel Schechter, I heard him, he gave a number of lectures at Kila Jesherin, so he told the truth. Until he went up to Boston to the Rav, whoever said all the keynote in Tisha B'Av. All of you know, the printers decided what Jews should stay, what keynote they put in big print, those are the ones you say. The small print, you skip. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sound overly uh, repentful, 
but just as past uh, Tisha B'Av, I davened at my usual minion in, uh, in uh, Ohel Rivka, I've been davening now for 31 years, and all from Jews with the biggest jichas in the world, Rav Rav Hirsch's grandchildren, Rav Rav Hildesheimer's grandchildren, the Chatham Sofa's grandchildren, uh, everyone there has jichas, I'm the only one there with no jichas, it's unbelievable. And let me tell you, they finish off those keynote when they start skipping, and I want to mention the name, one of the most illustrious names in the Torah world, he leads the skipping. It's unbelievable. You can choke on your teeth if you try to say a kina with any kavana. And you know in Tisha B'av, Hineni Adria, I saw with my own eyes, the rub sat down at 9 o'clock in the morning and said kinot and explained kinot 3, 4 in the afternoon, every word. Chas v'chalila to say that the rub was not was not medayik in piyot, in pizmonim, in kinot. It was unbelievable. And he says, this is why the Paitanim referred to Yom Kippur, Yom Adir. Yom Adir, how do you translate the most powerful, the most amazing day? Because Yom Kippur can take the place of the entire, make the Mikdash of the entire vault of the Seyir HaMishtaleach, of, of everything we dream about and pray for its restoration, everything that was and will be. And Yom Kippur takes the place of all this. And if so, the Rav said, and this part is not unique with the Rav, all the Dashanim have said this over the millennium, when did Rabbi Akiva say his Maimar? When did he say it? After Churban Habayat. Rabbi Akiva lived in the period immediately after the Churban Habayat. Jews still remembered the Avodah. You understand? You still had the Sheirit Pleita, this generation. It's the shifting of the gods. You understand? When I started teaching in the Kolel, every student I taught had been a student of the Rav before he came to the Kolel. We spoke about the Rav. It was tangible. It was living. It's a different ballpark. Nowadays, you fellas never even saw the Rav. Who here saw the Rav? Raise your hands. Please, Shaul, you're an, an old timer. Did you study? But you didn't study with the Rav. What are you talking about? When were you were there? What, eighty-five? I, I can't hear. Ooh, give me the years, Shaul. Don't play games with me. Years. Nineteen eighty, you still saw the Rav. If you tell me eighty-three already, eighty-four, you didn't see the Rav. I was there 83. I'm still crying from what I saw in 1983. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, he was borderline, in and out during those, those years. It's a terrible, say for Torah Shabbala, you understand what I'm referring to? It's, it's a terrible, terrible, well, from a mensch. Shaul, this one, let me tell you something. When you meet someone who's arrogant, I'm not tolerating it this year. It's a different year, different ballpark. This is my year. You know what I told you what not Tasha stands for? Tavarchu Shomrei Solovechik. And don't forget who you're looking at. This is my year. I waited long enough. This is it. Tashas. Tavarchu. Everyone's walking around hitting their heads against the wall. Shas. Rebovadji, they're going crazy. They got it wrong. Tavarchu Shomrei in parentheses. Harav Soloveitchik. Oh, Tishmeru Shomrei Misoret. 
parentheses, Soloveitchik. You understand? This is it. Nothing is by chance. The binary, the first distribution, the first books held in the hands of anybody right after Rosh Hashanah, Tashas. Let me hear it again and with meaning. Tishmuru, Atavarchu, Shomrei, Soloveitchik. Okay. Soloveitchik. Pronounce it right. Thank God. We got there. And this is going to continue to Tilshnat Tashaz Salavechik Zamir, as I explained yesterday. And, and the Rub said so beautifully. Yeah, Shaul, uh, uh, excuse me? Yeah, uh, when you see the greatest people in the world, the greatest minds in the world, and Minzet, do you, do you know a little, uh, uh, I, Mendy, I apologize, you know a little Mamalushan? Minzet Vosvet from a mensch, you know what that means? When you see what becomes of a human being, believe me, from this moment on, you be humble, don't argue. When you go out with a girl, act decent, bow before her, let her know that, that she is the queen and you are no more than a lowly prince, not a king. You understand? Look, look up the Ramban. Let us continue. Mending. Mending. Listen carefully. When was this said? After Chorban Habayat. There was still the Sherat HaPleta. How do you think the Jews felt? How do you think the Jews felt? You heard it in this classroom. I said here publicly, one of the fellows got all upset. There can be no Torah after the Rav. There can be no Torah after Yiddish. It's a cliche, a cliche. You're the art scroll generation. We're still a link with the great, glorious past. When we see your generation looking at the art scroll Gemaras, we get sick. We remember what was. Look at the Pasuk and Ezra with the, with the Kahanim. You know what I'm talking about? The older Kahanim and the younger Kahanim. It's an unbelievable Pasuk. The older Kahanim were crying. This is a Beis HaMikdash. And the young Ogana were jumping for joy. Thank God they mastered three volumes of Atzkel. So you can imagine how the Jews felt. Here is Churban Havayat. Here there's no Sihah Mishtalayach. Here there's no Kohanim B'Avodotam. Everything they spoke about, everything they heard about is gone. And they felt depressed, degenerate, dejected. Maybe it's all over. We can't accomplish anything. And Rabbi Akiva is coming and telling them, yes, we don't have a Siyah, we don't have a Kohen Gadol, but we have Kapara. We have Yom HaKippurim. We don't have Kabonet, but we have a lot of Nechama, a lot of solace. When the Beis Amigdash is gone, we have a different Kapara. And that's Yom Kippur itself and Shuva. And the greatest news is the great Machapeh is the Rebbeinu Shalolim. Ashrechem Yisrael, you should be so happy, because now with Chorban Habayit, you don't need Shlichem, you don't need the Siamish Talayach, you don't need the Avoda, you don't need the Kohen Gadol, you yourself, standing before God, can be Metahir yourself. We've lost it all. We've lost the Beis Hamikdash. we lost the land, but we didn't lose the Rebbeinu Shalolim. And that's why Rabbi Akiva uses the word Avinu Sheba Shamayim. Bizman Beit HaMikdash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Metaher, like a Melech, like a king, Malchiot. And it's hard to come near a king. Who can go near a king? Who can approach a king? And there are all types of rituals that one has to go through. 
want to approach a king? But after the Churban, they know Kabanot. God is Metayah Machaper, not Betorat Avinu Sheba Shemayim, not Betorat Melech, but Betorat Bechinat Avinu Sheba Shemayim. A father, one can approach a lot more easily. How happy a father is when he hears the voice of a child knocking on his door. How happy a father is when a son who's 6,000 miles away picks up a telephone, Dad, how are you? How happy a father is that he knows his son has not forgotten him. You don't need any great preparation. You don't need any simish talayach. This is not a melech. This is a vinish of a shamayim. And this is why Rabbi Akiva was medayik in his lashon. Ashweichem Yisrael. Even after the Chorban. And before whom? And this is the message. And this is Rabbi Akiva's understanding of what has happened and what has changed with Chorban Habayat. And therefore, in Perik Aleph, Halacha Aleph, the Rambam stresses the Vidui. Has to be Vidu. Has to be Vidu that involves you with the carbon. What are we talking about, Vidu? It's integral, it's intrinsic. You bring a carbon, bring an ash, and bring a chatat, you have to lean on the carbon. You have to connect yourself, you have to connect the Vitu, you have to connect, if I may use brisker language, the Gavra, the human being, with the Chetza, with the Korban, Hilchat Maseh Korbanot, Perikimel, Halacha Yudalet, Somech Yadav, Umit Vadeh. Why? Because it's this man of Beit HaMikdash, it's this man of Korbanot, and the whole vidui, the whole kapara, the whole shiva process is intrinsic to the korban, to what is happening into the base of Mikdash. It is intrinsic to the ceremony. But in Perik Aleph, Halacha Gimel, it's talking about Mizman Hazeh. I quote the Rambam. Mizman Hazeh, Shein Beit HaMikdash Kayim. V'yein lanu Mizbeach Kapara. Ein Shem Ela Tshuva. Here already, it's not the vidui, and it's not the korban, and it's not the asham, and it's not the smichat yadayim. Here it's tshuva. This is what counts. Nothing else counts. Everything centers around tshuva. There's no korban. There's no smichat yadayim. There's no chalos in the korban. There's nothing that has to take place that's extraneous to the human being. All we need is the human, the tshuva on the part of the human being, and everything centers now on this human being and his tshuva. The human being has inherited all the great power that existed before in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Kabbanat, in the Sa'er Mishtaleach, and now the human being, through his own efforts alone, through his own tshuva, through his own person, can achieve the same atonement that was achieved with all that was done with the ceremonies in the Beit HaMikdash. And this is the great 
Chiddush of Rabbi Akiva. Okay. Now let us continue, but I just want to, I just want to pause, just want to pause for one moment. I want, I want, I want to touch upon a different theme, just in parentheses. When you think of this Mishnah, you think of Liacha Chub Mbayet, so basically, this is exactly the generation in which we're living. When you think of the 20th century that's coming to a close, and there'll be so many uh, talk shows and TV shows, and BBC already has a series, the great events of the 20th century, with all that happened in the 20th century, nothing equals the Holocaust, the genocide of the Jewish people, the butchering, the murdering, six million Jews, man, woman, and child, the maiming of millions and millions of additional Jews. There isn't anyone who went through the Holocaust, basically, that came out of it normal, came out of it intact. And when you say Hitler killed six million, I always add he killed six million and ruined and adversely affected the lives of millions more. And of course, my lifespan spans the Holocaust. And although I was fortunate to be a third-generation American, therefore personally spared, but nevertheless, my earliest recollections are the Holocaust, the survivors, the Shanghai Rebbeim, the miracle of survival. And of course, we now represent the generation like Rabbi Akiva, just like Rabbi Akiva is speaking to the generation after the Churban Habayat. And Rabbi Akiva says these beautiful words of solace, here the Beit HaMikdash is lost, Karbanat the lost, the Kohen Gadol is lost, and look at the beautiful words of Rabbi Akiva, Ashrechem Yisrael! So, what solace can we say? And paraphrasing this Mishnah, in the school for girls that I helped organize back in 1987, with Reshut Maria, who I've taught ever since, so there I have the girls always write a personal paper for me, who am I? And inevitably, I have uh, today third and fourth generation Holocaust survivors. Uh, what's amazing is that the venom and the seeds and the difficulty and the experience, the trauma, to a certain degree lives on in the third and fourth generation as well. And one girl asked me last term, I believe it was, or wrote the paper last term, and she said, you know, sometimes I have grave moments of doubt. How could God allow this to happen? How could this happen to the Jewish people? How could we go through this? How much death and suffering? And of course, she's touching upon what has become a major theme in post-Holocaust theology, philosophy. You all know how many books have been written. Uh, God and Auschwitz. I lost God in Auschwitz. I found God in Auschwitz. Uh, it's endless. You all know Yitz Greenberg's uh, uh, theological position that there's no longer a covenant. God broke his covenant with us uh, the, through the Holocaust. That's why a Jew has choice not to do any mitzvah, to do some mitzvah, if you can be reformed or conservative or orthodox, the choice is yours. Whatever you do, you're doing God a favor because there's no longer a covenant between the Jewish people and God. I mean, it's uh, hard to repeat these words, but uh, nevertheless, this is what Jitz Greenberg has said and preached and written and published, and it defies imagination that he's still listed in the RCA manual. 
But I want to say something. Can we offer any solace? And is there a way to approach this problem? And I said something last term, I've repeated it a number of times since, and I want to repeat it here within this context of this Mishnah, because it left a very, a very positive, cathartic effect, and the more I think about it, the more I'm inspired. And I agree wholeheartedly to go through Chub and Bayat, to go through Chub and Am Yisrael, to go through a Holocaust, to, to take family units to destroy fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. It, it, it's just overwhelming. And so I don't want to answer the question. I don't know if there is an answer. Some of you know I give lectures on this uh, at Madrashat Maria. And I don't know if there is an answer. Maybe the only answer is Hestapanim Sadik Bemunanta Yifya. But on a pragmatic level, I want to just say one thing. This comparison that Rabbi Akiva makes to pre Holocaust to post Holocaust. I want to take the comparison pre Khurban and post Khurban. I want to take the comparison and just move it sideways. Fine. It's now sixty years later. 55 years later, we've gone through the Holocaust. We've been wiped out. Our faith has been challenged. I do not deny it. One of my earliest lessons in life, and it was a very powerful lesson, I grew up in the Bronx. The Bronx was a spiritual wasteland when I grew up in it. And I davened in the shul, uh, Yeshiva Rabbeinu Chaim Moza, that's the second shul I davened when I was a kid. I davened Zariyakov. It was Washington Avenue, then Arthur Avenue. My grandfather had a fight in one shul, moved to the other shul. Uh, typical, typical shul business. So uh, I davened in the shul. And for a while there was some rabbi there, a European survivor. I don't know, he went on to become an accountant. But it was like a, a, a stopover while he got a little bit of an American education. And we had someone who came to daven with us every day, morning and night. And people used to say that whenever his wife cooked chicken soup, uh, she dropped in uh, a half a glass of milk into the chicken soup. So I asked the rabbi, I said, uh, how can that be that here's a man that comes to daven morning and night and his wife cooks chicken soup and drops in uh, milk? And the rabbi gave me an unbelievable answer. He said to me, you can't even ask that question because you weren't there. And she's angry at God, mad at God, whatever the reasons are. She's taking her revenge. The man comes to shul, because in Europe, this was the Jewish way of life, you understand. You went to Minsk to meet the Minsk Apikoros. So that you came in Friday night, where's the Minsk Apikoros? I film with them red, and I want to talk with him. The Minsk Apikoros, he's in shul, he's stopping. You wait for the Minsk Apikoros to come home, and he makes kiddish, he makes a bracha on the challah, and then he's ready to talk with you. Say, so I thought you were an Apikoros. As an Apikoros, I am, but it doesn't mean I'm not a Jew. You understand? There was a, the, the, the guy knew you have to go to shul morning and night. So I want to say one thing. I don't have any answers. I don't want to propose at this moment in time any answers. But let's look at it differently. Madeline Albright, Mady Albright, her parents made a decision. They're angry at God. They broke the covenant. The hell with God. God is gone. God doesn't exist. Whatever conclusion they reached. And here you have Mady Albright, a total Jew, never brought up as a Jew. Although I'm sure she knew she was a Jew. But brought up as a, as a Christian in a different religion. It's 50 years after the Holocaust, 60 years after the Holocaust, you take the Albright family or whatever the original name was, look what remains of them. Look what remains. Two, three children with the Jewish people, absolutely no connection, nothing whatsoever. Take the Bava Varebi. 
Baba Varebi survived the Holocaust with one son, I believe. Outside of that, everyone else was wiped out. Today, the Baba Varebi in his mid-90s, not in the best of health, has hundreds and hundreds of direct descendants. Hundreds and hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds. So, 50, 60 years later, Ashrechem Yisrael, with all the difficulties, make the comparison. Think about which path to choose. Look at the difference. And you know something? The above of the descendants no longer have questions. The questions dissipated. The questions answered themselves. Tzadik Asta astea panai be'etahi. Whatever the meaning is, whatever Hestapana means, questions disappeared, the questions answered themselves. And take a look what the other choice is. And, and this is the way the Jew has to have the strength, has to go further, has to build, and we'll come to this much later in this Russia. Not today, but there's a meritic part that we'll hit next week or the week afterwards where the rebel talk about rebuilding. But I often think in terms of this Mishnah, before the Churban and after the Churban, yes, the problem is a tremendous problem. Look at the beautiful cathartic message that Rabbi Akiva gave them. And when you deal with the Holocaust, we don't have to argue, we don't have to debate. Compare Mary Albright to the Bava of a Rebbe, and the answer stares you in the face. And I'll say something else too. Israel, Israel, the Jewish people, and Jack and I have been discussing this uh, the last few years, we're an amazing people. The Israeli, the Jewish people raised great Rabbanim, great thinkers, great spiritual leaders, Gedoli Yisrael, Gedoli Machshava. And yet we can't raise great Jewish politicians. It's just amazing. You think in terms of who the politicians are here and the leadership they provide, it's frightening. Forget it. These are, he, Clinton in America does a better job of providing some sport of spiritual leadership for the American people than, than our average politician here. But I have to tell you, Golda Meir was probably the last prime minister we had because Begin became prime minister. He was already too old and poor health. It was not the Begin of your. Begin already was a different Begin in 77. He was in poor health. But Golda, when I came in Aliyah, she yet was sharp. And she made statements that you had to quote, you had to think. She had, she had the wisdom of the ages within her. Of course, she herself rebelled. If you ever saw pictures of her mother and father, her father had a long beard, her mother wore a tichel, and Golda was, was of course, a, a proudly proclaiming apikorset, apikoris. So uh, she made a statement. She said, you know when a Jew isn't a Jew anymore? When he has no feeling for Yom Kippur. This was her statement. She said, Yom Kippur, that even a Jew is an apicarist, even a Jew is far gone, even a Jew is far removed. But when Yom Kippur comes, there's a feeling. It's different. And this was the Yom Adir. These were the original settlers. These were the original apicarism here, the original Mapamnikim, certainly the Mapainikim, but Yom Kippur was Yom Kippur. They still felt what Rabbi Akiva refers to, the greatness of the day, Yitzumah Shalom, what the Paitanim called the Yom Adir. They still felt it. And it's a very fascinating comment, and it fits right in with Rabbi Akiva. And Golda said it, whether Golda knew the Mishnah or not, I don't know, whether she knew Rabbi Akiva's statement, I don't know. But intuitively, 
Goldefelter. I give you another statement from Golda Meir that I don't want to comment on, but boy, you could comment for endless hours. Golda said, we set out to raise a generation of Apikosim in Israel, and instead we got a generation of Amei Haaretz. Very powerful statement. Gold, I repeat, we set out to raise a generation of Apikosim in Israel, and instead we got a generation of Amei Haaretz. Okay, so now, Halacha Aleph, Perik Aleph, Halacha Gimel, Tshuva takes the place of everything today. That's what the Rambam is telling us. Tshuva takes the place, Kabanot, Siyam Ishtaleach, Tshuva takes the place, Dalet Mitad Beitin, Tshuva, Yom Kippur, it's everything. So the Rav asked a simple question. Now we have to understand, now we come into the heart of the Drasha. Now we have to understand, if Yom Kippur is so powerful, and Tshuva is so important, what is involved? What do we have to do? See, it's a lot more difficult. Before Churban Bayit, we could never ask this question. Because the answer stared us in the face. There was a Korban, you had to be Mitvada, there was a Seyem Mishtalayach. Before Churban Bayit, we knew exactly what we had to do. But now, with Yom Kippur and Shiva being the sole concepts we have, how do we achieve it? How do we do it? Hilchat Shiva, Perik Beth, Halacha Zayin, Yom HaKippurim, who's man tshuva l'kol yachidu l'rabim, v'hu keitz mechila v'slichal Yisrael, l'fika chayavim hakol asot tshuva l'hitvadot b'yom hakipurim, perikimel halacha dalid, u'mepnei inyan zenagu kol b'yit Yisrael arbot b'tzdaka v'maikshim tovin l'asot b'mitzvot meirash shana v'yad yom hakipurim, yotea mikol hashana. So it's very interesting that how does the Rambam describe this process? Yom Kippur is the great, glorious, magnificent, focal day. Zman's mechila v'slicha. But we have to get ready for Yom Kippur. We have to do tshuva. We have to do mitvadeh on Yom Kippur. We have to do vidui. How do we get ready for it? And the Rambam says, Nagu kol beit Yisrael, lahabot betztaka, maisim tovin, lasot b'mitzvat, Rosh Hashanah, ad Yom Kippurim, aseret yamei tshuva. We have to get ready, have to be more pious, have to be more firm, have to be medayek in mitzvot, this is what the Rambam says, Lahabot b'mitzvot. Hey, wait a minute. This is shaychat. What's going on here? We're trying to show off before God. We're trying to influence Him. This is shaychat. Think what the Rambam is saying. This is before vidui, before tshuva. Lahabot b'maisim tovim. This is like, this is now a college class. I have to give grades. It's the day of the final. 30 guys are taking my final. They walk in carrying five sets of the Rav under their hands. Rebbe, this is for me. This is for my girlfriend. This is for my parents. This is for my in-laws-to-be. This is for my, uh, my, my former girlfriend. Oh my gosh, that's Shaykhad. Each guy, 30 guys, one class. I've sold, we banish a lot of them. 150 sets of the Rav in one class alone on the day of the final. That's Shaykhad. Why do you laugh? That's Shaykhad. Now, translate it to the Rambam's Psaq. It's based upon the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. Look, look, look what the Rambam is paskening. 
What's going on here? You didn't do tshuva yet. Jim Kippur hasn't come yet. But you're going to be mother by my son Taivim. What do you want to give the Abish to Shaykhad? And the Ramban, the Ramban explains, oh no, the Ramban Nachmanides with the Nun, the Rebunish Shalalim will not take Shaykhad. You think by doing mitzvah, remember this is talking about pre vidui, pre kapara, pre atonement. You still have all your sins. You think by walking around with 50 copies of the Robin, 75 copies of Bernard Revel, and 99 copies of, uh, of Rakafat Aron, and, and 103 of Chalik Bet Rakafat Aron, and 2,000 copies of the Silver Era, that's Shaykhat. You'll be Mabe B'mitzvot before the Rebbeinah Shloylem. You're Mabe. The Ramban. Where's the Ramban? Gavarim. Perik Yud. Pasuk Tatzayin. Divrei Hamatkil be Arpachim Lotik Shuad. I quote from the Ramban: "Velo Yikach Shochad Miyad Adam Upirsho Perusho B'Shochad Shavilu Chasid Gamur Sheyavah Vera Lo Yikach Mimenu Mitzvah B'Mitzvah Tav B'Shochad Lechapelo Avol Yani Shano Al Chatav V'Yigmolo Mikakol Tavatav." And the Rambam says, the Ramban says so beautifully, Nachmanides, that don't think because you have a long list of mitzvahs. You've been learning Torah, you've been putting on tefillin, you've been dominating three times a day, and it gives you the right to sin? What do you think? You're not going to be punished for your sins? What do you think? God will take shochad? And and the Ramban here is telling us without shuva, without kapara, all the good mitzvah in the world are not going to save you for the punishment of your sins. And and therefore, it makes the question all the more difficult. What is the Rambam paskening here? Ma'beb ma'isim tovim. Ma'beb Mada the mitzvot. So what? This is shaychad. You have to get rid of the sins. To be mother is not going to help you get rid of the sins. God is not going to take shochad. God is not going to be impressed. This is the Ramban. So you're saying my manaris differs with Nachmanris? Absolutely not. The Rambam paskins himself. Perik Zion, Halacha Zion, Kama Malot. Malot hachu kamam ula malot hachuva emesh hayaze muvdal mehashem elokeis reel shenema avonotechem hayum avdilim benechem levein elokeichem tzoek vi eno nene vi ose mitzvot vi tarfino tamba panav shenema Mi bikeshot mi yetchen romos chatzerai. Shishayahu alev pasuk yudbet. What a fabulous Rambam. What a fabulous Rambam. Look how great tshuva is before the tshuva. This person was separated. Was in chayrim. Was muhram. Was menudeh. God wanted no part of him. And and even if he did a mitzvah, even if the apikoros, even if the the oisvaf, even if the bum, even if the pushta, call him what you wish, came to shul, God took the mitzvah and threw them in his face. Me bikeshat me yatchem romoschat seirai. A fabulous pasuk. Who asked you to come to the Beit HaMikdash? Who asked you to come to shul? Who asked you to come to the yeshiva? Who asked you to trample in my court? 
So you see, the Rambam himself, Maimonides himself, agrees with Nachmanides that God does not take Shochad. And this makes our question all the stronger. Why did the Rambam insist preparation for Yom Kippur before the Kapara, before the Vidui, before the Tshuva? Lahabot b'mitzvot b'maisim tovim. Why did the Rambam insist? What good do the mitzvah do? What good do the Maisim Tovin do? If there's no Tshuva, there's no Kapara, there can be no Yom Kippur. It's just Shaykhat. What's going on here? What's the Psak of the Rambam? Ah. Did I make a bracha yet today? Anyone remember? I don't... Anyone recall? Did I make a bracha? No. Okay. Baruch Wrong. All right, let me finish out today. We're in the heart of this year now. And here's the Rav, Bechol Gadluto, with all his insight. The Rav said, let me explain. There's no contradiction. There are two types of sinners. There are two reasons why people sin. One reason is Choron Af. Arrogance. Reshit Peretalet Pasuk Hei Vayicha Lekayin Maod Vayiplu Panav Vayomru Hashem Elkayin Loma Charalacha Veloma Nafal Panecha Charanav Kayin is furious His sacrifice has not been accepted Why does a person become furious? Why does a person become angry? Self-centered, arrogant, haughty, must listen to me. Don't cross me. If you do, I'll be furious. This is one source of sin. And this is why the Rambam in Hilchat Dayat stresses that although we should always live the Shvil Hazav in the middle way, when it comes to Ga'ava and Kas, we have to go to the opposite extreme. We have to go to the very other end, to be a shval ruach, because these traits create sin. Hilchadayet perik bet halachi gimel v'yesh dayotsha sula damun hog behem the vein on init eliyut rachak min akatzer echad at akatzer acher for who kovaleiv v'chena kas midara aku ad l'maod v'rila dam shitrachet mienu ad akatzer acher v'yelamnei datzmo shelo yichos v'afilo dava sheraui lechosalav and yes. This is a terrible trait. Anger. Gaiva. Haronaf. Self-centeredness. In the Muslim movement, those of you who, certainly none of you live the Muslim movement. There's no one in who lives the Muslim movement. But those of you that have studied what Muslim was all about, you know what they did in the Muslim movement? You'd have a chaver. And you'd make a deal with your friend, give me 10 tests during the week. And it's very simple. You'd want to write a note, your pen is missing. Your friend took the pen. You'd learn, don't get angry. Don't get upset. Control yourself. Kas, self-centeredness, haughtiness, haronaf, inability to accept the fact that we may be second best 
inability to accept momentary defeat. This is a great cause of sin. This attitude is the opposite of Torah because Torah requires hachna'a, surrender to the chukei Hashem. How does Rashi say it? Vamidba perik yutet pasukbet zot chukata Torah lafikach katuvba chuka gizayrachi melafanai ein lacha reshut lahaher achareha. This is what Torah is all about. It's chok gizayrach. You have to surrender. You can't be a lebal gaiva. You can't be like. This is this is where sin comes from. These these are people that don't know how to surrender, don't know how to control their emotions, don't know how to control their ta'avat. This is the Western man. This is Bill Clinton, the symbol of the Western civilization. These type of individuals are called Rishay Haaretz. In Alenu, the Hakdamat to the Malchiot, we have a very famous sentence. V'chol b'nei basa yikru b'shmecha l'hafnotei lecha kol Rishay Haaretz. Look what it says here. Yakedo v'yedu kol yoshvei teveo ki lechot tichrach kobera tishaba koloshon. So you see, it talks about b'nei basa, but it talks about Rishay Haaretz. Rishay Haaretz, self-centered, haughty, desire, me, here, now. There is no yesterday, and I don't care about tomorrow. This is exactly what's the man's, exactly. Homosexual. You ever see? Homosexual. Today, totally normal, fine, upright, sexual preference. Student of Aaron why you color Israel? Why you musmach? Why you graduate? World famous today. Tremendous articles. Marev, New York Times, homosexual synagogue, orthodox rabbi, comes out of the closet, etc., etc. Homosexual? Think for a moment. If you're a homosexual, who's going to inhabit the earth 10, 20, 30 years from now? How would you be here today if your grandparents were homosexuals? Just think about it. Rebani Shalalem. But Western civilization, like Kefet, sinner, fanatic, prejudice, arrest him, send him to jail, refuse to hire the homosexuals, spoke against homosexuals, took down the purple line on the street, painted it blue and white. Rebani Shalalem. Think what I'm saying to you. That's the Western world. That's Rishay Haaretz. When you have a yesterday and care about tomorrow, you cannot be made Rishay Haaretz. So this is one type of sin. However, there's a different type of sin. It's the opposite. Not Rishay Haaretz. It's not arrogance. It's inferiority complex. It's the lowliness of man. It's, it's B'nai Basa. It's the inferiority complex. It's, it's the madrega of Kayan, Vayiplupanov. Here already, his face has fallen. He's mishabed himself. 
He's machni himself, but not before God. It's before every human being. You want to be popular. You want to be part of the crowd. You want, you want to say something that people will applaud. You know, sometimes you don't want to sin, but you're carried away by the pull of contemporary civilization. You feel the call of sanctity. You feel it, but you're not big enough to answer in your heart. No, it's not Rishay Haaretz. This already is a different element. This is what we refer to in Elenu, V'chol B'nei Basa. This is the B'nei Basa in the sense we say it in Bereshit Perikvav Pasakimu B'shagam Hubasa, where God says, I have to have mercy on a human being. He's only flesh. The flesh is weak. What can I do? And these are the two types of sins. One sin is Rishay Haaretz. Arrogance, self-centeredness, haughtiness, no tomorrow, no yesterday, today, here, now, Monica, Bill, Western civilization. And then there's another type of sin, the B'nai Basa. Well, we're only human beings, B'shagam Basa. I want to be part of the crowd. I have to enjoy life a little. Why are we here? Why did God put us in the world? And what's wrong with a little enjoyment? You feel the call of Kedusha, but the flesh is weak. And therefore, the Rav said so beautifully, we have two different korbanot, two different vidui. On Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol says mitvadeh, on both the Shah and an ayo, v'amid b'chatev pasuk zayin chet, v'asol l'chodesh shvivi, krapna l'al Hashem reich nichoach, p'ad ben b'kar echad, ayol echad, k'vasim b'nei shanat minim yiyu lechem, and you have to be mitvadeh on the shah and on the idol, on the ayol. What is a shah? The shah, this is Rishay Ha'arvet's big, powerful, overwhelming, don't let that bull get his temper up. Oh boy, rave a red flag in front of him and you are finished. The matador is over. Kemale rachamim. Ha'ayel, that already is the B'nai Basa. A small animal, an obedient animal, an animal that characterizes ne'echaz b'svach, b'reshet chafbet, pasuk yudgimu v'nei ayel echad, and this is exactly the sinner, the B'nai Basa. He gets caught in the maelstrom of life. He gets caught in the pleasures of life. He doesn't really want to sin, but he can't help himself. And in Halacha, we have both these categories. There's a Muma Lahachiz and, help me out, a Muma Leteyavon. And that's exactly the Muma Lahachiz is the Rishay Ha'aretz. The Mumalatayavon is the B'nai Basa. Now, I'm going to leave off right over here. I just want to end off the thought, and we'll pick it up next week. What the Rav develops is that what the Rambam is talking about, Lahabot, the mitzvot, it's talking about for the B'nai Basa. It's not that this is Shaykhad, but this is the way to wean him, to train him, to take him away from the lifestyle of the B'nai Barsa. Show him how beautiful Torah is. Let him start observing. Show him the godlet of Torah. Reach out to him. Give him a hand. 
NCSY, etc. And that it's not Shochat Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it's rather a method of preparing him for the Kapara, for the Atonement, for the Vidui, for the Tshuva, which will come in Yom Kippur, and we will develop this next week. Gentlemen, I reiterate. On this Yom Sheni of Pashat Nitzavim, on this Yom Sheni, the first day of our first year of the year, on my Rebbe Zechot Sadek Levracha, what have we accomplished, what have we done? Number one, we called attention to Hashkacha Pratit, that as we sit here awaiting Shnat Tashas, on this very day, so many years of labor and work and a lifetime of learning and study. It's a, so much hashkacha that brings me to the Rav and and we'll see the way the thousands of critics in the world, chaverim, uh, professors, Rashi Yeshiva, family, I open it. My life is an open book and my published writings are an open book and I invite anyone to come and find fault with even one little word in the 650 pages that, compri- that comprise the Rav. And if they find fault, I'm not from the Rishay Aretz, I'm from the Bnei Basa, I'm not the Par, I'm the Isle. If I have made a mistake, Halavai, someone should show I've made a mistake, I'll be the happiest person in the world to say, Chatati, Aviti, Pashati, I'm mistaken, and correct myself in the second edition. But uh, I invite and challenge everyone to read every word and to be as critical and as critical as they want and to put on the glasses of, of tradition and Toru Mata Journal and the BBD Journal. Uh, the world is welcome. I accept the challenge. I invite the challenge. On this day, we began our first piece for the year in the Nyana Dioma, the 1973 Tshuva Drasha. I just scratched the surface. We still have another two-thirds to do, but we came into the heart of it already. Number one, we touched up the Mishnah of Rabbi Akiva, the beautiful Mishnah. What did Rabbi Akiva want? Why Avinu Sheba Shemayim? We explained after Churban Bayat. We explained the Avinu Sheba Shemayim. It's better than a Melech. We touched up the Rambam. Why in Halacha Aleph? He speaks about Tshuva and Vidui. And Halacha Gimel repeats again, Tshuva, Vidui, Yom Kippur. But there's a big difference. In Halacha Aleph, it talks about when they're Korbanot and when there's Sayyidah uh, Mishtaleach. But in Halacha Gimel, it's Rabbi Akiva's Halacha, that now what we have is the Yom Hadir HaKadosh, Yom Kippur, and everything that was done before can be accomplished on Yom Kippur with Shiva alone. Don't lose faith and don't lose feeling. God has not deserted us despite the Chorban. I quoted um, Golda Meir, and I believe it's a very powerful concept that when a Jew loses feeling for Yom Kippur, we, we have lost it. And in er- Eretz Yisrael today, I refer you to my public talk last year of the Torah and democracy, in Eretz Yisrael today, we have lower Lenu, a portion of the population which has lost feeling even for Yom Kippur. It's one of the great challenges we have facing us. Then we went in, and I'll come back to that challenge in another minute, then we went in to the whole concept of Lahabot, Bamaisim Tovim, Mitzvah, What's going on here? This is Shaykhad. The Rambam at first reading seems to imply that you can walk around with a thousand 
500 sins, and if you do a bit of mitzvah, you God will look away from the sins. The Ramban in Chumi says, Chas v'chalila. And, and the Rambam in Hilchat Shuvah says, God will pick up your good deeds and throw them in your face. Me But now we started to explain, no, there are two types of sinners. There's Rishayaretz and Bnei Basa. And what we're talking about here are the Bnei Basa. And they have to be weaned gently. They have to be in, induced and inducted to a Torah way of life with love, with understanding, with the heartbeat of Torah, what it means, Lahabot Mitzvah, what it means, Shabbat, what it means, Kashrut, what it means, Tarat Mishpacha. And even though they may still have sins, if we do it gradually with understanding, with outreach, with knowledge, with dignity, we're preparing them for that great and glorious moment of Yom Kippur and of Tshuva. And this is what I wanted to say. In Eretz Yisrael today, the only redeeming graces that generally speaking, these people are not Rishay Haaretz. They're only B'nai Basar, whose only concept of life is Western civilization, a civilization that allows Bill Clinton to be president of the United States with the overwhelming support of the feminist movement in America, a civilization that makes homosexuals, lesbian relationships normal and, and, and freedom of choice. And, and of course, they caught up with this. This is the great America and the great England and, and the great Western world. And why should we be any different? And of course, they have no Torah education, but they thank God they are not Rishayara they are B'nai Basa by and large. My dear young friends, next week, those of you who are brave enough or perhaps decent enough to come back, I will take attendance lists for my class on Sunday, Be'ezrat Hashem. I wouldn't miss next week's Sunday class. We deal with the missiles, the planes, the parachuting. If you have a heart of Torah, and a heart of modernity with a feeling for yesteryear and a care for tomorrow, I wouldn't miss next week's Sunday class for all the rice in China. And next Monday, Be'ezrat Hashem, we pick up with the B'nai Basa, with the Rav, with his analysis, with his understanding. Oh, Rebani Shalom. Next Monday's class, I don't even want to put a price on it. It is priceless. Good luck today on Mazalu Bracha with Rabaran Lichtenstein. Until we meet again in health and happiness, Basvadanya. Thank you very much. If anyone's interested.